You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Good morning, River City. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Memorial Day for most people is kind of an unofficial start to the summer. And, and for us, there are many ways to mark a change, change in season, right? There's a holiday on the calendar. It just happens to be a more formal or official one. One of the markers that tells me that it's summertime is when baseball and softball season start for my kids. When the gloves and cleats and bats come out, then we know that summer is here. But sometimes, like this year, seasons and changes are a little harder to anticipate. Will I wear short sleeves tomorrow or will I put on a coat? Because often seasons don't fall neatly on our calendars like we'd like them to. I can't tell the weather that it's May and it should be warm, even though I wish I could. For us, we have a tree in our front yard. It, it, it kind of looks like an apple tree, but it doesn't produce any apples, so it's probably some kind of Lilac. If you're an arborist or dabble in botany at all and you want to come take a look, I can give you my address. You can tell me what kind of tree I actually have in my yard. But no matter what the calendar says, I can tell when spring is really in motion, when summer is right around the corner. And I can tell not by the calendar, but by looking out my front window at that tree. When that tree begins to blossom, its pink and white petals begin to come out, then I can be sure that in a few days my kids will be riding bikes up and down the streets or that I'll be able to take the motorcycle out of the garage, right? Sometimes it blooms in April and sometimes it blooms at the end of May, but when it blooms, I know that the season is changing. So if you want to open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 21, that's where we're going to be. Some of the volunteers who serve on our strike team are coming around with Bibles. If you'd like one, so you can follow along in the text, Luke chapter 21. And in the middle of our passage today, Jesus uses a similar analogy with a different kind of tree to give a similar lesson about knowing when things are going to happen, when things are going to change. And it's part of the larger answer that Jesus is giving to the question that one of his disciples asked way at the beginning of our chapter, when Jesus says, the temple that you're admiring right now, it's not going to last long. The, the, the stones are going to come tumbling down. And the disciple asks, when? How will we know when we're close to this thing happening? Like you said, Jesus. And so most of Luke 21 is Jesus' response to that question. Now, if you were with us last week where we read the first part of Jesus' response, verses 5 to verse 28, and then today we're going to overlap that a little, start in verse 25 and read to chapter 38. It's a part one and a part two, which will hopefully make sense as we, as we get going. But the whole chapter, all verses 5 through 38, are Jesus' singular answer to the question of, hey, what's going to happen and when? So let's read our text this morning, Luke 21. We're going to start in verse 25 and read to the end of the chapter, verse 38. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. This is Jesus speaking. 
And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This is God's holy word for us. Now the question that Jesus is asked, all the way back in verse 7, is when? And Jesus tells them that this temple in Jerusalem itself is going to be destroyed, and they are rightly a bit worried about how this is all going to take place. But rather than just directly answering the question of when, by telling them a date on the calendar, Jesus says, we talked about this last week, Jesus says, don't be deceived by others who claim to be me. Don't be afraid when trials and tribulations come because I'm coming back. Verse 27, the Son of Man will be riding on a cloud, entering as a victorious king. They're worried about what's to come. And as an answer, Jesus promises that he's going to come back with power and glory, bringing full and final redemption to all creation and will usher in the fullness of eternity. Destruction for the wicked and rejoicing and rest for all those whom he has redeemed. That's last week. This week, Jesus continues. They're still worried about what's to come. He hasn't finished his answer. So the second part of our text starts with that same central theme that Jesus is coming back, that overlap in that middle section. And then, because he's coming back, there are some applications for those who are living as they wait his return. So because Jesus is coming back, because our redemption is drawing near, Jesus says a couple things that we'll get into. Watch yourselves, stay awake, and you'll stand before the Son of Man. Not in shame, but in glory. So we'll get to those three points a little closer to the end of our time this morning. But that's the path we're going to take to get there. So the main problem we're still addressing, like we were last week, is that there's still worry, concern about what's to come. And because of the surety of Jesus' promise... We can live by faith as we wait for him. Because his promise to return is sure, we can live here and now by faith as we wait for his return. 
So, Jesus says, verse 27, they'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That's the hinge for this whole section. And then, in our passage today, Jesus uses an illustration that we're going to look at first on our way kind of back to the end of the the chapter. Look at verse 29, and then he tells them a parable. Now, we've talked about parables before. Parables are a story intended to make a point. And I think in this case, the parable Jesus is telling is to give a more direct answer to the question from his disciple about the temple specifically. The original question he asks about when these stones on this temple are going to come tumbling down. He says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and you know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Jesus is drawing a parallel to you see what's happening in the tree and it tells you something about what's coming, summer in this case, and you'll see some things take place and that will tell you something about what's coming. So when Jesus says, when you see these things, what are these things? It's a legitimate question. We read a passage like this. If you look back just a few verses, verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you'll know that its desolation has come near. Verse 31, when you see these things taking place, right? Now, I referenced this last week, but, but here this morning, where we're going we're gonna to get into it in a little more detail. Last week, I mentioned that when it comes to prophetic language in the Bible, biblical prophecy, there is often a near fulfillment and a not yet fulfillment. As you'll see from the, from the image on the screen, a near fulfillment happening in time, in place, to a group of people, and often in prophetic language all throughout the scriptures, it's pointing to that and to something else, a greater fulfillment to come. And in apocalyptic literature, for us, uh, particularly the New Testament apocalyptic literature, but much apocalyptic literature functions like prophetic literature in a near and not yet component. If you go back to Daniel chapter 12, there's a similar question in Daniel 12 to the question the disciple asks Jesus in Luke 21. In Daniel 12, verse 6, Daniel writes, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? Daniel's been given a picture about this kind of apocalyptic, end-of-age reality that's coming. And the question asked is, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Verse 8 of Daniel 12, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? When will these things take place is a lot of what it sounds like. And then we read in Daniel 12, verse 11. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there should be 1,290 days. Now, I think it is biblically reasonable that Daniel was prophesying about the destruction of the temple and the ending of the Jewish practice of animal sacrifice. That at some point in the future, that was going to come to an end. 
And so when Jesus says of the fig tree parable, verse 32, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place, that I think Jesus is referring to the destruction of the temple in this parable. He's essentially saying the near fulfillment of Daniel's words and my words is that this temple will be destroyed, that, that the, the animal sacrifice will be taken away, Jerusalem will be overrun, and its people will run for the hills. And Jesus is saying, you in this generation, you will see this fulfilled. You will see this take place. And we know from history that the Roman general Titus, in about the year AD 70, led the charge. He was the military uh, general who oversaw the utter destruction and desolation of Jerusalem and the temple. So that the temple was destroyed within the span of that generation. And here's what's interesting. When, when Rome, they were particularly good at it, but there were no uh, war crimes, there were no Geneva Conventions. When a nation wanted to snuff out, completely put down a rebellion... They wouldn't leave anything standing. There would be no chance of any of you to ever try this again. And so they just decimated Jerusalem. Now, there are kind of two opposing views on eschatology uh, and how to interpret end times things specifically related to the temple on this point. Kind of two views on the chart. One view says, that in this passage, Jesus is not talking about some future end times. He's only talking about the temple. That the substance of what Jesus is saying here was fulfilled, the substance was fulfilled in AD 70 when the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is overrun. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those who say, that little to none about this passage is about the physical temple at all or 70 AD or any of that. The whole passage will be fulfilled in some future end reality. It's from future end end, if I can say it that way. And to be fair, I think that I understand where both of these are coming from and how both get to their arguments. And I think they're biblically defensible Now, as a caution, there are heretical dangers if you go too far in either direction. There's heresy on either cliff, on either side, if you go too far. But faithful brothers and sisters in Christ can hold and defend kind of both of these positions biblically in that it is either a lot about the temple or a little about the temple biblically. However, with that, they both have a set of challenges. If it's all about AD 70 and what happened at the temple in Jerusalem, that's a challenge for us, and it's a problem from the text because there are some things referenced here in the text that don't correspond directly to what happened when Jerusalem was destroyed, and there's still a future return of Christ. Christ has not returned yet, and so if it's all about that, then what does that tell us about the future return of Christ? So that gives us pause. And on the other side, if it's only in the distant future, some of Jesus' instructions to tell them to be prepared for something that's not going to happen for thousands of years and really has nothing to do with the question they asked in the first place about the destruction of the temple, if it's purely metaphorical. 
further. Then you have to do gymnastics about what does the word generation mean, which could be confusing. So my card's on the table, if you couldn't already tell. I think Jesus is talking about the temple and what's going to happen in that specific situation as an example of what's going to happen more broadly in the time, the age between Jesus' first advent and his second advent. I think that's what's happening here is Jesus is using a literary device called an inclusio. In biblical studies, an inclusio is kind of what it sounds like. It's a story included within a story. He includes a a bracketed answer about the temple within the broader answer about the age of these last days. So you're asking about the temple, Jesus says, and I'm going to tell you about the temple, but also how the temple fits into how it's all going to go in this age, these last days, between my first coming and my second coming. So it kind of goes like this. Here's the arc that kind of points to the big idea and how I get there. They asked, the disciple asks, teacher, when will these things be? And Jesus responds with a big picture of saying, let me tell you what it's going to look like in this age until I return. There are going to be wars, tribulation, persecution. That's going to happen. Along the way, Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed, which would have been a pretty significant event for any of Jesus' disciples. Three, the kind of the tip of the mountain, the big idea, there will be other signs even in the sky related to my return. I'm coming back. That's the big central theme. And then on the backside, you'll Know that Jerusalem will fall, just like you'll know when the tree is ready to flower, you'll be able to tell this generation will see it take place. It's included with the promise of the temple being destroyed. And then to close, so as these things begin to happen, wars, tribulation, persecution, which we see beginning all through the book of Acts and continue to this day, watch yourself, stay awake, pray, right? So so I want to highlight a couple of things that I think are helpful. The destruction of the temple is significant, but it isn't everything. That just because we're speaking of this inter-Advent period as these last days, it also doesn't mean that there won't be last, last days. I think that to Jesus' words in verse 25, and, and a principle of the parable of the fig tree is applicable not just for the temple, but for our day, that we can look around with discernment and see that, yeah, there's stuff happening. There's stuff happening in the spiritual realm that we can't even see. And so even with my simple eschatology chart, there's lots of room in the age to come for stuff yet to happen in those end, end times, if you will. And as I've said before, as important as some of these positions seem, and we are more than willing to discuss them and, and, and make good arguments and, and work through the text, kind of wrestle together over what does this mean and what are the implications, read books and articles from different perspectives on them. Let me just say it this way. We can discuss them and argue with them and hold two positions strongly, but we refuse to fight over them and to break fellowship 
over them. Because what sits at the top of our eschatological pyramid is the promise that Jesus is coming back. He said it'll be sudden. We'll get to that in a second. But it won't be surprising. It's not that we won't know when things are happening. He said he's coming back on a cloud in power and glory. So his return will be bodily and visible. The words we use in our statement of beliefs is that the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom kingdom will be personal and visible. Those are the essentials. And because the promise of Jesus to return in power and glory is sure, it's a sure promise, then Jesus encourages that we can live by faith in this life for as long as we wait for him. And that's where we'll actually land our, our points for today's sermon, which will be short, come into play now. Because of the sureness, the surety of Jesus' promise, we can live by faith as we wait for him. So Jesus is saying, my promise is that I'm coming back. And because I'm coming back, first thing Jesus says, verse 34, watch yourselves. This is an inward look. You're looking in for self-examination. Because your redemption is drawing near, in light of all that's going to take place, watch yourselves. This is a call for honest self-reflection. And the danger that Jesus paints, he says, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so it's a call to inward reflection for repentance and growth. But the danger is not to... Look inward, but to turn inward. Let your hearts be weighed down. To become overwhelmed by the cares of the world to such a degree that you would seek to bury them in drunkenness, in self-indulgence. That word dissipation, it gives the meaning of like the next morning hangover after a night of self-indulgence. The headache the next day. That's kind of what it references. I think that's at least part of the Bible's command against drunkenness in general is that it makes you dull. It makes you slow. It makes you you no longer in control over your own faculties. It's kind of the ultimate self-indulgence. Like, I'm just going to give up on thinking for a while. You literally give up mastery of your own body and mind to something else. And while there might be many reasons someone might choose various kinds of self-indulgence, the one Jesus presses on here is worry. It's fear. The cares of the world can be so heavy that sometimes it seems like there's no choice but to try to mask or self-medicate in such a way as to make those cares seem less heavy. And the caution that Jesus gives here, the danger is that because his return is imminent, a life that is turned in on itself is in danger of missing Jesus. That's the caution. That's the danger. So the question comes, are there things that tend to have mastery over us? And one way of knowing that or answering that question is asking this question. What do we turn to when things get hard? When things get overwhelming, where do we turn? It doesn't have to be drunkenness in the literal sense, although it might be. So the caution to watch yourselves is an invitation to self-reflection 
essentially a turning away from the default of self-indulgence. In light of the promise of His soon coming, Jesus is saying, look in. Where is your heart burdened? Because you are being called to faith. First, Jesus says, watch yourselves. Second, Jesus says, in light of my promised return, He says, stay awake. He says, that day is going to come upon you like a trap. That's the suddenly language. Right? A trap snaps. Verse 35, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Part of what Jesus is saying here is everybody's going to see it. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, the Apostle John says it this way. Revelation 1, verse 7. Behold, he, speaking of Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And Jesus says, stay awake for it. And he adds this little detail to staying awake. He says, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. Praying for what? Praying for strength. There's a toughness, a sturdiness implied there. In in Isaiah chapter 35, the prophet Isaiah spoke of strength. When in the wilderness... As the blossoms would bloom again, the glory of the Lord would be seen. And in seeing the glory of the Lord, Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4, Isaiah prays this, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, knees, excuse me. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And a few verses later in verse 10, Isaiah writes, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And so I think Isaiah is speaking here in the near of Jesus who was coming into the world to save his people. It was a uh, first advent messianic picture. Jesus was coming, and what was he coming to do? To ransom men and women for God from every tribe, tongue, and language. And Isaiah may also be giving us a glimpse to all of us that while we wait Jesus' second advent, that our prayers for strength would be strength for our weak hands and for our feeble knees, strength for our anxious hearts to not fear. So this isn't just an awakeness that I'm awake. I'm up. Not just awake, but eager. Eager for Jesus to come and to save us so that we might take hold of the fullness of joy so that all our sorrows and sighing should flee away. It's one thing to be ready, but the question is, are we eager because we can be ready for some something and still very reluctant but i think the readiness that jesus is talking about here is not face down to the ground reluctant i guess so kind of bummer approach the readiness here is face up head up eyes up 
Jesus is saying, stay awake, not just ready, but eagerly looking and longing for Jesus appearing. Watch yourselves, look in, stay awake, looking outward. And then Jesus says, you will stand before the Son of Man. And we're not going to linger long here, but, but I think Daniel 7 leaks through here in Jesus' words. This is Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. The ancient of days is a title for Yahweh. And to him was given, to the one like the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus, I think, is saying this in Luke 21. That at the end of all things, I will stand as King of kings and Lord of lords, and I will reign over a kingdom made up of people from every tribe and tongue and language and people, and it will last forever, and my words and my kingdom will never pass away. And that all those who are mine will stand before me. Every knee will bow before Jesus when he returns, but his own he will gather to him and they will stand in his presence. So the picture here of standing before the Son of Man is redemption language. It's salvation language. It's promise. So at the pinnacle of this whole passage, Jesus is reminding his disciples and he's reminding us of this sure promise that the one who has all authority over heaven and earth, the one who commissioned his disciples that as they're going about in the world, that they would make disciples of all nations, that they would baptize, that they would teach, that the the one who promised that he's going to go and he's going to send another, the Holy Spirit, who's going to live and dwell within each believer, each disciple of Jesus, that that spirit is going to lead you into all truth, that that spirit is going to be your teacher and your comforter and your counselor, that same one who said he will come again just as he said he would. Because of the sure promise of Jesus as our primary and central hope and answer to the question of what's going to happen, because of that promise, we can walk in discernment and not be deceived. We can live not terrified and by fear, but by faith. We can fight the drift towards self-indulgence and instead, by the power of the Holy Spirit, engage in humble self-reflection and repentance and belief And we can stay eagerly awake, anticipating his return and praying for his rescue of us. Because of the surety of Jesus' promise, we need not worry. But we can go about whatever work he's given us with joy as we wait with eager expectation for his return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you pray with me?